Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, veteran British journalist Philip Short talks about his latest book, An Examination of Russia's Controversial Leader. Simply titled Putin, Short's biography was published by Henry Holt and Company in May 2022. Speaking from the south of France via Zoom, Philip Short was interviewed by fellow journalist and bio member John, better known as Jack, Farrell. Hi, Philip. How are you? I'm fine. Good to talk to you, Jack. It's always good to talk to a fellow journalist. So you could be said to specialize in the biography of bad guys. Why is it good to study tyrants? Because they're not just tyrants. You say a speciality of of bad guys. I'd rather say a speciality of complicated people who are, to an extent, uh, the kind of mirror of their country as it's developed over a long period of time. If you think about Mao, Mao Zedong was the leader who presided over China's emergence from having been a medieval empire right through to being a a modern nuclear armed state. And he was very difficult to come to grips with. He, He was a challenge. Putin is a challenge because he's complicated. But Putin is also what I call an authentic Russian. Now, a lot of Russians won't like my saying that because they would rather think of him as some kind of aberration and not really representative of their countries. But in the same way that Donald Trump is was representative of a large part of the United States, Many Americans aren't too keen on that idea. So Putin is very much somebody who represents the aspirations, the fears, the anxieties, the cultural values of a lot of Russians. And that makes him interesting. But above all, it's the challenge of trying to figure out what a very opaque, non-transparent, complicated leader, what makes him tick? What are his motivations? What's he really going for? And with all the people I've written about, there has been that challenge. And I I have found it fascinating because it's kind of detective work to to put all the little bits of the mosaic together until a final picture emerges and you begin to understand where they're coming from. Especially in the Putin book, you actually talk about how he has been trying to come up with a new post-Soviet Russian identity. That's right. The Russian idea. Um, I mean, this is something Russians have been grappling with for centuries. You know, where does Russia really belong? Uh, That two headed eagle, which is the Russian emblem, looks west and it looks east. Uh, Geographically, this is a huge country which spreads across the top of the world from Asia, the Far East, right through to the borders of Europe. So, The question of whether Russia has its unique path uh, or whether Russia really belongs as part of Europe, belongs with a a Western-led world, that has engaged Russians for ages. And in Putin's case, what is really interesting is that he started off as really very pro-Western. 
you know, if you go back to the late 1990s, the early 2000s, when he became president, he emphasized again and again that Russia's place is part of what he called the civilized world, by which he meant, I won't say the Western-led world, but the world of the West. And Russia's place was with the West. And gradually he's been pulled in the other direction, this other side of Putin, which was brought up in the Soviet Union, where the West was regarded as an adversary, as an enemy. And little by little, the pro-Western Putin has been silenced and he's kind of given up on the West. And the idea that the West is deeply hostile and wants to bring Russia to its knees has become predominant. So it's been a huge change over the last 20 years in his attitude and where he's been coming from. What, towards the end of his political career, has caused him to take this dramatic step? Well, whenever uh, Russia has had better relations with the West, there has been more freedom at home. Um, You go back to the 1950s uh, under Khrushchev, the so-called Khrushchev Thaw, when the Soviet Union began opening just a little bit to the West, and at home there was more freedom for writers and artists and so on. And uh, under Yeltsin, obviously very much the case, it was true under Gorbachev as well in in the late 80s, and uh, under Putin as well. As relations with the West have deteriorated, so the the straitjacket has tightened at home. And this has been really, really very, very evident over the last three or four years since Putin was re-elected in 2018. It's not just a matter of, of Putin becoming more autocratic. He's become much more dictatorial. The space for freedom has narrowed dramatically. And in many ways, it's gone closer, it's not there yet, but it's gone closer to the kind of totalitarian rule that you had in the the Soviet Union and which you have today in China. As I say, it's not there yet, and I don't think we'll ever get to that point. Young Russians, particularly in in the cities, the big cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg, mentally are a, a world away from the mental universe of their forebears back in the 1970s and 60s. They really are a totally different generation. So there are limits to the extent to which Russia can continue this totalitarian drift. Nonetheless, it's it's very marked. And you say, why did he do it? You're, you're seeing speculation and analysis in a lot of uh, American journals that he was getting old, you know, he's 69, he's coming up to 70 in October. Um, He doesn't have that much time left in which to accomplish what he'd really like to see done. I think that is a factor, that bringing to heel Ukraine, reformatting the relationship, if he could, with the United States, were two things that he really wanted to do before he starts a political transition, because there is going to have to come a, a next generation of leaders, and he knows that. Uh, these were the final accomplishments of, of his career that he wanted to do. And it hasn't worked out the way he wanted. Now, you've been working on this book for eight years. Is that correct? Yeah. And all of a sudden in the last two years, Ukraine looms as a crisis. How do you integrate that so quickly into your writing as deftly as you did? Well, I want to say it was not unexpected, but that would be unfair because I think very few people in Russia thought he was actually going to invade. Very few people in Europe did. Uh, If you go back to the middle of last year, very few people in America thought he was really serious about it. It's all very recent, but it's entirely consistent 
with the way he's behaved before. Whenever he's felt there was something which was politically imperative for him that he absolutely had to do, he has ignored the collateral damage economically. He did this when he brought the so-called oligarchs, people like Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the, the business magnates. He crushed them politically and ensured, this is back in 2003, that they would never challenge his power. Now, that was pretty bad for Russia's economy because Western investment, it didn't dry up, but it diminished. He didn't care about that. What was important was the political gain. 2014, the annexation of Crimea, Western sanctions. People say they weren't that strong, but nonetheless, you know, Russia suffered economically. Again, that didn't matter. What was important was to bring Crimea back to Russia and establish an unstable situation in eastern Ukraine. Exactly the same thing now. You know, you, you read a load of stuff saying it was bonkers. Well, yeah, by any kind of cost analysis, Western uh, evaluation, yeah, it was a crazy thing to do. The damage has been huge. But for Putin, this time, as in earlier occasions, the damage was secondary. What was important was to, first of all, confront America over Ukraine, and secondly, bring Ukraine to heel. Yeah. Reading the book in the story of Putin, but also in the story of post-Soviet Russia, I get this great sense of sadness at how the West bungled the job. We made a lot of missteps, I agree with you. But you know, it really started back in the 1990s, immediately after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Russians were really kind of keen on this relationship with the West. People thought, we're going to have the same freedoms that they have in America. Life's going to be wonderful. We're going to be prosperous. Everything's going to be marvelous. And let me just say, it was marvelous for a few very clever entrepreneurs who made enormous fortunes. It was pretty good for a lot of creative people who suddenly found they could do, you know, things they had not been able to dream of doing before. But for ordinary Russians, it turned out to be absolutely horrible. Most Russians went through a period of several years when they really didn't know where the food was coming from. Many of them were destitute. Drug addiction went through the roof. Crime, I mean, Chicago in the 1920s was kind of nothing to what happened in St. Petersburg in the 1990s. So they very quickly soured on this relationship with the West. They felt Russia had been tricked, they'd been cheated, that democracy was not at all what it was held up to be. And that turn away from the West was part of the basis on which everything afterwards followed. And it was in the 1990s, too, that NATO expansion started, that basically Clinton said they've got to eat their spinach. They lost the Cold War. We won it. <laughs> it didn't go down very well in Russia. And we could have been more magnanimous, put it that way. Yeah. Now, you said that the old Russian hands were saying this. People like uh, Matlock and Kennan were actually giving this advice to American leaders. Absolutely. Even Strobe Talbot, who you know was very loyal to Clinton, and when Clinton made clear that he wanted NATO expansion, he saw NATO expansion as a way of locking Eastern Europe into the Western world. When Strobe saw that, then he went with Clinton. But before that, he was very doubtful about whether NATO expansion was a good idea. People like George Kennan, 
I mean, really, the doyen of, of American Russia watches, all these people did. And so did the CIA. The CIA said to the White House, you do realize this is going to have very considerable consequences for relations with Russia in the longer term. But the Clinton administration thought it knew best for what was in America's interests and went ahead. And unfortunately, the consequences for America and for the West as a whole and for Russia have been not at all good. How does Putin's personal development from growing up amidst the myth of the sacred motherhood and then seeing the corruption and the fall of the Soviet empire and being there in Eastern Europe when the wall comes down, coming home and playing a role as a quasi-reformer and then coming into power after Yeltsin and turning towards the authoritarian approach. How does this sort of mirror that development that you just spoke about among the Russian people? Was he a, a deaf politician who was reading his audience well, or was he going through these same changes of feelings himself? I think he's a deft politician. This may sound strange, but if you say, you know, he's an autocrat, he's a dictator, but he's always wanted to be in tune with his political base. And his political base is the vast majority of Russians who don't have passports, who don't travel outside the country, who don't have wonderful lives, but at least he's given them a minimum. He's given them reliable pensions. He's made sure they keep their jobs and so on and so forth. So he has wanted to be in, in tune with them. And he's by and large, succeeded. He's been very wary of doing anything which would, would antagonize that base. But his itinerary, if you like, has been pretty extraordinary. He grew up in post-war Leningrad in a very, very tough area. He could very well have become a street, petty street criminal himself. He didn't, largely because he went into sport. He became a national champion at, at judo and sambo, which is the Russian martial arts. Then he got into the KGB. And, you know, if you say that to Americans or to anyone in the West, the KGB, that was a really ghastly, cruel organization which intimidated the Russian population, tortured people and so on. But to a young Russian in the 1970s or 80s, it was about the best career you could possibly hope for because you had a privileged position in society. You had a chance of going abroad, which at that time very few Russians could do. And so it wasn't just Putin who wanted to be in, in the KGB. Loads of very bright young graduates at universities saw that as the best career they could have. Then it all fell apart. He went into politics in the 1990s and gradually, yes, he changed. But I think the, the key thing that changed him was the relationship with the West. Had that worked out differently, we would be in a different place today. And I'm not blaming either side. You know, there's a kind of tragic inevitability in what happened, that the Russians behaved like Russians, and the Americans were Americans and behaved like Americans, and the two finished up with a train wreck. Yeah. Now, I believe it was one of your previous books, but somewhere in, in the reviews I read that, that was accusing you of excusing rather than interpreting and helping us understand Pol Pot and Mao and Putin. I don't see a lot of credence in that, but does it bother you when, when people say that you know, everything is black and white and you're making excuses for these awful tyrants? 
I don't remember that with Pol Pot or Mao. I mean, they were much easier than Putin because Putin is a subject of vital interest for most people in the West. And most people have very strong views about Putin, usually very negative views, and justifiably so. I'm not contesting that. So that has been difficult. I said at the beginning of this book, in the prologue to the book about Putin, that I don't want to tell people what to think. Readers are quite intelligent enough to figure things out for themselves if you give them the facts. And what I've tried to do with Putin, as I did for Mao, was to establish as clearly as possible and as objectively as possible what the truth is, what he's done, the crimes he's committed, what he hasn't done, the crimes he hasn't committed, which other people did, and so on. And inevitably, if you're trying to write a book like this, some people are going to say, oh, but you haven't said that he's the devil incarnate, you're on his side. Well, no, it's for you to say he's the devil incarnate, if that is the conclusion you draw, (laughs) or not. Um, You know, people seem uncomfortable if you let them decide what they think of someone. They want to be told, oh, this is an awful man. He's he's just the worst. And I don't want to do that. I want people to think for themselves what they make of him. Yeah. Even in, in a definitely a devilish man like Adolf Hitler, there's lessons to be learned from what causes the evil to come out in a human being. Exactly. And certainly that was the case with Pol Pot. Uh, I do remember in the preface to prologue to that book, I said, you know, this is also a story about evil. What makes a person cross the boundary between what is reasonable and what is actually totally evil behavior? There are reasons why Putin has gone into Ukraine. I'm not saying they're good reasons. All wars are horrible. All wars are barbaric. So I get a little upset when people say Putin's barbaric war. Well, of course it's barbaric. And there are, there are a whole series of circumstances which caused him to decide that he was going to invade with all the human suffering that has entailed. Yeah. Now, I wrote a book about Richard Nixon, and Putin actually in his pragmatism reminds me a bit of Nixon. Uh, there was so much information about Nixon's childhood available to me that I could make what I hoped were informed guesses about his relationship with his father and his mother and such. Tell us from where in growing up in Leningrad with an overprotective mother and whatever that dark shadow was from the war that fell over the family, Putin's feel about his deep devotion to Mother Russia and its security and pride may have come from. I think what Putin's childhood really tells us is about his personality. Does it tell us a great deal about his devotion to to Russia? I think that's probably something which formed a little later. The early childhood, what is most striking is his self-discipline. The way he played, even as a child, he played his cards extremely close to his chest. Even his best friend, the the boy he shared a desk with at primary school, knew that there were areas which he couldn't go into, that there was a kind of barrier between them which Putin would never lift. And that has stayed with him uh, all through his life. The way he never raises his voice when he's angry, uh, he just speaks more and more quietly and more and more coldly. He never loses his temper. And he said, uh, you know, if I feel like losing my temper, I get angry with myself because I'm showing weakness. Mm -hmm. This is someone who keeps it 
all inside, who trusts now absolutely no one. People talk about Putin's entourage and his old friends and people who were with him in St. Petersburg that he stayed close to. He doesn't really trust any of them either. He is a very, a very complex, a very secretive, a very mistrustful man and very unpredictable. You know, almost no one in Russia would have predicted that he would invade Ukraine. Uh, the Europeans didn't think he would. Zelensky in Ukraine, right to the last minute, didn't believe it was going to happen. America was much, much quicker off the ball on this. It was really, the, your, your services were very good because they looked at the data and they said to themselves, well, everything is in place for an invasion, so we have to assume one is going to happen. But everybody else, no. Putin caught everybody wrong-footed, which is what he's really rather good at doing. So um, aside from the judo analogy, he seems to be a unique personality of an overprotective mother who yet makes fun of her overprotectiveness and of a distant father. Yes, absolutely. An overprotective mother. And who says, uh, he, he said, oh, she, she, you know, she was like a mother hen. Uh, the only thing that she was really worried about was my happiness and my well-being. But it was not, even though she was overprotected, it was not um, a home in which there was a lot of emotional warmth. Um, and his father, very like Putin himself, was quite a, a taciturn, secretive man who didn't raise his voice. He didn't get angry. Uh, he hid a lot inside himself. So I think the father's influence was extremely important as a model. And the father who bottled everything up would occasionally, when it, he was caught off guard, as it were, would it occasionally show emotion, would burst into tears. Putin is exactly the same, hides everything, and then something will come out. And it happens, you know, like once every five or 10 years, which moves him. And he can't hold back his emotion. But that is absolutely the exception that makes the rule. Yeah. In the very first pages of the book, there's a very interesting discussion about his brother who died in the war and how this left a, a terrible scar on the family and that there is some mystery about it that has not been successfully explained in the various official Putin biographies. What do you think happened? All we know is that his brother, uh, was his name was Victor. He was born just before the war, and he died when he was about two uh, during the siege of Leningrad from diphtheria. And all the, the explanations which Putin was allegedly given by his mother just don't add up. Um, I mean, his, his mother was starving. Everybody was. Uh, it was absolutely appalling. I mean, just for a small fact, you know, more people died of starvation in Leningrad during the Second World War than all the Americans who've died in every war the United States has ever fought. It was absolutely dreadful. There was a lot of cannibalism. And one story was that his mother had said she'd given this little boy away to two women who'd come to her and she thought they'd look after the child better. When everybody knew that there was cannibalism and that children were being kidnapped to be killed for food, no mother would have done that. The other story was that she put him into an orphanage. Well, orphanages didn't take children who had families. There were enough abandoned children. And in any case, the conditions in the orphanages were absolutely appalling. So what happened, I can't even begin to speculate. 
I'm quite sure Putin himself has no idea. All we do know is that he was buried in a mass grave in the, the main cemetery in Leningrad. It's a very chilling story. And talking about the papers, with the exception of France, you have been doing your research in closed societies where the control of information is very strong. Aside from the skills that you've picked up in life as a foreign correspondent, how do you deal with portraying leaders of countries that do not have this tradition that we have of you know, of a national archives, much less having people talk openly in ways that might get them in trouble with the government? Well, you'd be surprised, but a lot of people who'd known Putin in St. Petersburg, in Leningrad, when he was younger, were willing to talk openly. And I don't think they were holding things back. I mean, this is when I say it's a little bit like detective work. You come across the same little snippets of information from lots of different sources. It's like triangulation. You know, they're all kind of combined to form a picture. And in Russia, at least when I was there, and I think it's probably still true, although the government archives are very difficult of access, the newspaper archives are open. And you can follow in the local papers of, of from St. Petersburg from the 1990s a lot of, of what he said and a lot of the more egregious lies that he told about his early career can be found if you compare different reports in, in the published press at that time because uh, the, the stories he's told just don't add up at all compared with what, what was written at the time. So it's it's not that bad. Uh, in, in other countries... Um, the advantage with Mao was that Mao, uh, you know, he was already gone and Pol Pot as well. And in each case, uh, you know, occasionally there are windows of opportunity when things become a little bit more open. And that was true when I was working on Pol Pot in, in Cambodia. And it was true in China when I was working on Mao. So it's good lessons for a, uh, a young biographer is to strike when the iron is hotter, when the moment arises. I, I wanted to point out the uh, very skilled way in the book that you deal with ambiguities. Um, you write sometimes, it is permissible to wonder, or it is not difficult to make a case. These are very skillful ways of saying, this is what I think is happening, but I'm not 100% sure. Well, I've tried to avoid using words like probably and plausibly, because I, to me, they send up red flags. If you are into a, a probably, uh, a plausibly, or it must have happened like this, then you are speculating about what you really don't know and you don't have any proof for. Those little <laughs> wiggle room phrases that you mentioned, yes, they're to suggest something and to say, say openly, no, there's no proof. Um, think about it. Does it make sense? And the other thing, which is such a trap for biographers uh, and other writers as well, is, the, you know, to explain is not to justify. Yeah. Do you bring a strict sense of analysis or do you also bring compassion when you examine a human being like this, even someone like Putin or Mao? I think you have to have a little bit of empathy. Somebody asked me the other day, you know, would you like Putin? And I confess I was completely flummoxed. I was stumped for an answer because, no, I don't. He's not the sort of person I'd say, well, come and spend a weekend. <laughs> um, on the other hand, you have to have some kind of empathy, some kind of sense or sympathy with the things he's been struggling with all his life. We all struggle. Everybody does. And if you're trying to understand why somebody behaves as he does, then you, you have to understand it's not just why he's doing it, but 
what is moving inside him, what what, what he's about. Yeah. Putin is doing, in many ways, certainly wrongly over this war, what he thinks is in Russia's long-term interests. Yes, he wants to stay in power, of course. He wants a legacy. He wants to be remembered as a Russian leader who confronted the United States, made the United States back off, and kept Ukraine from becoming a pro-Western state, kept it within the Russian sphere of influence. He wants to be remembered for all that. But he also believes, wrongly, I think, in, in this case, that what he's doing is in Russia's interests. What's the lessons for the democratic societies in dealing with these complex uh, issues going forward? I, th I think the fundamental lesson is that we should become better at putting ourselves in the shoes of others. I, I don't wish to make scurrilous aspersions, but it is something America is really not very good at doing. Uh, you're not very good at seeing how other countries will react to what you do because you can't put yourselves in the position of that country and see how it's going to look to them. This was true in Afghanistan, it was true in Vietnam, it was true in Iraq, and it's true now with uh, Russia. So learning what your actions are going to be like in the eyes of other countries. And there's another thing, this war in Ukraine or adversarial relationship as it's become between Russia and America really didn't have to happen. It was avoidable. And there is a kind of tragedy in that, that you didn't need this war with Russia, even if it's a proxy war through Ukraine. So that's something which perhaps people should think about rather more, how to avoid things going off the rails like this. Yeah, it's a, a delight and an honor, sir to be able to talk to you. <laughs> so thank you very much indeed, Jack. It's been a pleasure. That was British journalist Philip Short speaking with John Farrell about his latest book, Putin, published by Henry Holt and Company in May 2022. We recorded this interview via Zoom on June 17th of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day.